0: Welcome to episode four of the podcast series, A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, hosted by me, Alex Thompson of Eastern Approaches, and joined once again by Mike Robinson of UK Column and David Scott of Northern Exposure. Congratulations if you've made it this far through the steep climb of the six initial episodes. Unfortunately, there's no shallower route to the first viewing platform on this mountain. We need to tackle these initial concepts, very nebulous as they are, before we get into the meat of how we've been governed in Britain in the past. And we're at the halfway point of these six episodes. And what we've covered in the first three, together with a review of what we saw, is first of all, we looked at constitutions and concluded that someone has to write them and it will be the best shot you have. Then we went on to look at the common law in the English-speaking countries in particular, and saw that there are several definitions of common law but the most useful of them is perhaps we give a place to conscience experience and common sense in our judicial decisions and our jury decisions and last time we then went on to talk about rights and the main thing i think that came out of that is that negative rights rights not to have things done to you are more in line with the ten commandments and our conscience and make more historical sense than the idea that you have a positive entitlement to other people's goods, with the state playing an unfair referee in the process. So, gentlemen, this takes us to episode four. I think this is really where some people are going to throw their toys out of the pram. We're going to question whether democracy is the desirable or perfect system of government. So, let's start by quickly thinking about our electoral system. We have several electoral systems now represented in the United Kingdom because of the European Union and the regionalisation agenda, but even before proportional representation came along in 1999 with the Scottish and Welsh and Northern Irish new parliaments uh, elections, and later also in the regional elections for London and other city-states that have been created along the way, we in the past did have some kind of mixed system. Uh, Mike, of course, you grew up in Northern Ireland, but you're too young to remember the Parliament at Stormont when it was prorogued, that is, uh, put out of action by the Crown prerogative in 1974. But we do at least represent different parts of the UK between us where we grew up, and they have had different electoral systems in the past, and many people, even just in the other English-speaking countries, have experience of different electoral systems. So, Mike, just give us a quick review, if you could, of what the UK's electoral system is right now, and what it is when people stand up in Parliament and say we are a democratic country. What are they referring to?
1: Well, that's a good question. Well, first of all, the the voting systems in the UK for Parliament at a national level it's called first past the post. Uh, this applies to members of Parliament. It also applies to local councils in England and Wales, but it doesn't apply to the regional governments of Northern Ireland and I presume Scotland as well, but but, uh, uh, David can maybe confirm that. But first past the post is very simple, you go into the voting booth You have a a ballot paper with the constituents for the election listed on it. And uh, and we should mention that the UK, for this purpose, is divided into constituencies, 650 of them. And the voter places their mark against the name that they would like to see elected to the House of Commons as a Member of Parliament. Whoever gets the largest number of votes at the end of the day is elected. You mentioned proportional representation. That that certainly is a system that has been work that, that was working in Northern Ireland when I was living there. So you, you had first, second, third choice and so on. But of course, that was put in place, Alex, to try to make elections fairer in, in a particular political environment that it, you know, coming out of the troubles and so on, to try to answer the questions over fairness of the vote in various constituencies. So that was a special case, perhaps.
0: Albeit a special case that does shed light on this tricky word, democracy, Mike, because there, as I recall, because the news was very much focused, UK and international news was focused on Northern Ireland as the Troubles came to a formal close. And we kept hearing about these communities and we had to be fair to communities. So one of the key issues there is democracy, the representation of the will of a collection of individuals or of communities.
1: Yes, indeed. But uh, what's interesting is that that in recent years for the House of Commons elections and for local councils, there has been quite a bit of pressure being put on to to replace the the first-past-the-post system um, because certain elements in society see that as an unfair system. Certainly the smaller parties do. Uh, The Liberal Democrats have been big proponents of getting rid of 1st past the post and replacing it with a proportional representation system of some kind because they feel that first-past-the-post is, is unfair to the smaller parties. Um, and I think, Alex, you mentioned uh, the influence of Europe here and, of course, the Liberal Democrat Party Uh, very much influenced by Europe and the European Union and but if we look at what happens in many European countries they find it relatively difficult to form a government because there is no outright majority party winning the general election in those countries and so they end up uh, having a process of negotiation following the
0: election to try to form a coalition of some kind or indeed before the election or you can find in the case of Belgium and Spain, highly federalised countries, uh, where there's also ethnic rivalries at play, uh, that they spend a year or more without a government and some kind of directly crown-appointed caretaker administration instead. And what's interesting is uh, satisfaction with the government and prosperity tends to go up in those government-less years. Yeah, that,
2: that's also been the uh, the case in, in Israel. They've had many times without a government, and these have been associated with uh, economic growth and relative success and relative peace as well, because you don't tend to start wars if you don't have a government.
0: Now we're getting to the manipulation of emotion which really is kind of the the end of the ride i think for this argument on democracy the the argument most made by the philosophers in in athens and then culminating in in aristotle's arguments that democracy was whipping up the crowd and promising the moon on a stick and actually enslaving men by making them be ruled by base passions promising that they could vote themselves other men's wealth but maybe that's you know, quite a long way down the road of our discussion, because it's it's going to be a shock to some to hear us being so, at least, entertaining the scepticism that democracy isn't the be-all and end-all. After all, most people in the English-speaking world know that Winston Churchill quotation: that democracy isn't perfect, but all the other systems are even worse. There are, however, books, openingly questioning. Uh, by a German, no less, although a German who's flourished mainly abroad, whether democracy is all it's cracked up to be. I'm thinking of that classic economist of the Austrian economy and uh, libertarian school, Hans Hermann Hopper, the surname is H O P P E, with his provocatively entitled book, Democracy, the God that Failed. David, you have dared to open the, cover, the covers of that book. How did he dare to write such a thing?
2: Oh, he he really dares. Now, the the thing that the the listeners have to understand about Hans-Hermann Hopper, and the reason that I love Hans-Hermann Hopper's work, is that no one has ever said, gone into a party in a crowded room and pointed to someone across the room and said, see that guy over there, he's like Hans-Hermann Hopper, only more so. No one's ever said that. It will never happen. On any given position, Hans-Hermann Hopper will take the most radical, hard-edged view and defend it entirely rationally, and it's a very interesting process to watch. Now, what Democracy, the God that Failed uh, argues, and argues very powerfully, is that democracy compared to princely rule, compared to monarchy in the first instance, is not progress, but is in fact a degradation of civilization. It's in fact a means by which civilization becomes cruder, people and societies become less civilized, less refined, less creative, and less productive. And that it is a step on the way towards tyranny, towards totalitarianism. It's it's very much a collapse. And he points to many both historical, empirical, pieces of evidence, but also because he's from the Austrian school, he largely argues this from a priori principles and demonstrates why this is the case. Now, one of the the empirical pieces of information is that uh, he looks at how much of a total nation's wealth the government takes. What's the size of the government sector? And under monarchy, you had somewhere 3, 4, 5% was about the most that the government ever took out of society. And under democracy, that's gone up tenfold. We're up at 40 sometimes 50%.
0: And indeed, where you're speaking from in Scotland, that's almost the figure of those in employment. So about half are employed by the state in some form or other.
2: Yes, we're well into the high 40% for for state employment in in Scotland. With a consequent impoverishment of society, because the degree to which you're siphoning off people with ability and skills, and you're, you're putting them into essentially parasitical, and this is the word that Hopper uses, parasitical operations, where they rely on wealth created by others and captured by taxation. And they're not really generating wealth, they're not generating produce, things that people can take to market and other people will want. They're not generating richness in any of its meanings in a society. Um, They're simply following state edicts and such a large percentage of your population, such a large percentage of your talent and your capital base are then siphoned off for this purpose, that that the, the free market, the other aspects of civil society are left bare, are left starved of resources, starved of talent.
0: So that democracy is a kind of endless sink into which our productivity is sunk, our economic and cultural activities are displaced into this idol, is that it?
2: That's one aspect of it. Yes, uh, another aspect he points out, and it's this sort of decivilizing aspect, is he looks at the the idea of time preference. Because if you are a property owner, uh, you have a family, you have a, f- a future, you will take a particular view as to what your time preferences are. You will tend to save, you will tend to put off with current consumption and look for the look to the future. You will conserve not only. Uh, sort of current expenditures, but you'll, you'll look to the capital value of everything that you have. And if, if you compare democracy to, to monarchy, a king that actually has value in the nation that he can leave to his heirs and successors will tend to do the same, will tend to not overtax because it will reduce the, the capital stock, it will reduce the value of his, of his country, and will we'll take that farsighted view. But under democracy, the rulers only get to use the levers of power whilst they're in power. There is no incentive for a for a far-sighted view. Time preference comes down. Everything becomes much more immediate, much more childlike in many ways, and less wise, both at the governmental level, but also at the level of the individual subject citizen, man or woman on the street. There's a a tendency, Hopper argues, that they too become more childlike, they have higher time preference, everything's much more immediate, they're not making the the wiser longer term investments in their own future, and there is this consequent erosion of civilization and cheapening of, of the society that comes from it.
1: What David said there is really interesting because something that we haven't said is that while Britain is considered a democracy now, it wasn't. It was a monarchy. And it's gone through a period of being a constitutionally limited monarchy. Uh, and now it's viewed as a democracy. And one of the things that that fascinated me about what David has just said is that if you you watch how British society has gone, British government, the British population over the last couple of hundred years, but particularly in the last 50, 60 years, I think you can see exactly what David was talking about there. If we we watch uh, the standard of debate, the standard of argument, the standard of government in the 21st century and compare that to 50 years ago, we can see a major devolution, and I use that in the sense that it has devolved, not that it's not that it's uh, spread out into the countryside. It's actually,
0: it's actually reduced in quality. A decomposition or a downgrade. Yes, a yes. and
1: it's 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 an accelerating decline. Uh, it's something that that if you compare something as simple as Prime Minister's Questions from 2020 to Prime Minister's Questions from from 1980 and compare it to Prime Minister's questions from maybe a few decades before, the standard of the questions, the standard of the answers, they always played politics, I suppose, but the, but the standard of the arguments in debates was much higher in the past. Uh, and the same goes for the arguments that the, the general public makes to their politicians. Um, these have been devolved in recent years as well. So I think, I think what David has
0: expressed... We can see with our own eyes. Absolutely. And this is before we get on to the party conferences, which were always the set piece of rhetoric, particularly in the old Labour Party pre Blair, uh, because, of course, it was a network of people coming out of trade unions, working men's study associations, chapels, building societies. For foreign listeners, that's uh, people saving their money locally with ethical organizations. And the speakers that came out of that circuit, the self-taught men, were just remarkable. If you look at uh, the footage, or more particularly listen to the footage, of 1970s Labour Party conferences, you will be astonished at the, the standard of rhetoric that people are being treated as adults and not in the caricatured way that we see now. So what's gone on here? Well, let's go on to talk about a couple of books that pick this apart again. We can do little more than point people towards these weighty tomes, not all of which we think are fantastic, but let's go on from Hopper to an Austrian, and this one is an Austrian national, not just an Austrian in the sense of belonging to that persuasion of economics. And this is Friedrich von Hayek, and he's written two books, David, which you have digested. One I think you like more than the other. One is in an outline, the title is exactly what we've been hinting at already, and that's called The Road to Serfdom. The other is called the Constitution of Liberty and the latter is the one that Mrs Thatcher loved so much that when her more socialistic leaning cabinet members were arguing over how much money to confiscate from people and how much of the liberties should be taken away under a supposedly conservative government, Mrs Thatcher slammed that book down on the table, The Constitution of Liberty by Friedrich von Hayek, and said, this is what we believe. But David, I think it's the other book of his that you prefer. Yes, the fact
2: that Margaret Thatcher chose the Constitution of Liberty, I think, is fascinating, and it shows a lot of why Thatcherism wasn't all that it's claimed to be. The uh, The Road to Serfdom, I think, is a is a is a genuinely great book. It was written immediately post war. It was warning the West of the dangers of socialism, of how they, they would slip into uh, into a path that would take them to slavery, to public slavery by the state, and it carried this warning full volume. It was somewhat difficult to get it published, as I recall, at the time because of the initial relationship with the Soviet Union, but that, that quickly resolved itself as the true nature of that regime became ever more apparent. With perhaps one or two weak compromising chapters within it, which slightly takes a shine off, the Road to Serfdom, I would say, is, is a great book and one that, that people should absolutely read. It's well worth digesting. And some of some of the chapters are are truly excellent in illustrating the problem and warning of the, the likely effects. Now, I went from that to the Constitution of Liberty. I was delighted when I found out the same author had written a book called The Constitution of Liberty. And I did read it uh, some years ago. And I remember being very disappointed at its um, lukewarm nature, its tendency to compromise with the state, its tendency to to yield far too much to state power and state control, and somehow hope that this wouldn't turn out badly for us all. There's a reason that people look back at the the sort of main line of thought in terms of liberty, libertarianism, free market economics, as being Karl Menger, Ludwig von Mises, von then. Uh, the Austri- uh, which were which were Austrians, and
0: we should point out that people who are finding these strange German names hard to write down can find almost all the books we're describing, particularly the more Samizdat ones, as PDFs on various websites. I think if you uh, do an internet search for M I S E S, Mises or Mises and PDF, you will find a lot of this material pretty quickly, and also audiobooks read in YouTube and other formats. Yes, they're very available and, and the Mises
2: Institute also will do, you know, six quid paperback versions of most of these if they have the rights to them. Um, and then from Ludwig von Mises, it went to Murray and Rothbard um, and then his student was uh, Hans Hermann Hopper. And that's the main line. And it doesn't tend to be F.A. Hayek, despite the fact he was the one who got the Nobel Prize for economics. He was the one that was lauded by Margaret Thatcher and who had most obvious influence. It doesn't tend to be him that is that is cited as the great resistor of state control. His reputation was made very early because he was the free marketer, Alternative, the free market opposition to the statist economics of the of what was termed the new economics. He also made what was perhaps the great strategic mistake when um, when John Maynard Keynes' general theory came out. Uh, F.A. Hayek was expected to write a rebuttal to it and chose not to do it because he'd spent the previous several years rebutting the previous work of Keynes, only to find Keynes just abandoning his position and then coming up with something entirely new. And he thought it was a fool's errand to do it again. And that was, in terms of ideas, perhaps one of the great strategic errors because it was Hayek that was looked to to rebut these ideas. He was looked to, this is in the, the, the 30s, to come up with the free market interpretation on things. And, and he didn't do it at that point, which was a great, a, a great pity. And it had to wait until the 50s after the death of John Maynard Keynes, for someone to take on the task of analysing the flaws in the new economics, and it wasn't Hayek, but he came back to prominence in the in the seventies with the Thatcher Revolution as an old man, but very much a, a kind of star of the of, of free market economics. But he was always compromising all the way through. There was this tendency to, to be a bit half-hearted, to compromise with the state. And I'm afraid that the Constitution of Liberty, as a book, is, is quite badly flawed as a result.
0: It seems that we're going to have to entitle this episode Democracy Colon The Books, because we have quite a few more that we want to give a couple of minutes' digestion of. And that will pretty much wrap up this episode. But I think that's necessary heavyweight Introduction for people to get to grips with this idea that there is a long history of people in Central Europe and in the English speaking world and going back to ancient Greece and Rome and indeed China saying, be careful what you wish for. Uh, people might be a bit surprised that just as in the first episode, we did God. Uh, so in this episode, we're doing economics and how it will hit you in the wallet. And what cultural level you will reach rather than talking about uh, you know, placating the, the, the crowd and giving them what they want and, and pandering to their sentiments, you know, which, which is perhaps the, the ultimate syrupy version of democracy that we're fed in the Western world. So I think that probably the next episode will not go on to the rule of law. But we can handle then the rest of the issues around democracy, perhaps some of the more current and pressing questions in Britain and the United States in particular. But let's forge ahead with the the thinkers who've really engaged with this. In passing, I will mention a recent book by an American, Christopher Ferrara, uh, if only because the title is directly alluding to Hans-Hermann Hopper's book. Ferrara's book is called Liberty, Colon, The God That Failed. Ferrara is arguing in a fairly recent book that there are many sides and aspects to overselling people things through the ballot box. And David, you were just talking about some of the German-Austrian and thinkers who said, be careful what you wish for because you could find that you're impoverishing yourself in many ways uh, by going for a highly democratic state instead of entrusting statesmen to whom you then hold to account. Christopher Ferrara says that there is also liberty with a capital L which has been oversold in the United States in particular and what he often calls in this book negative liberty. And he says that it's an idol, at least that's the review of it by John Milbank of the University of Nottingham. It's almost a semi-theological book, I would say. So it's not for every interest, but it's part of the argument. But I wanted to move on to something even more spicy by a gentleman who is speaking with the experience of the Iron Curtain. And as usual, it's the Poles who are some of the best thinkers on this, together with the Czechs. Uh, This particular author is a Pole, Richard Legutko. The first name is R-Y-S-Z-A-R-D, and the surname is L-E-G-U-T-K-O, Richard Legutko. And he has written a book entitled The Demon. In democracy. Let me read the couple of paragraphs blurb about this book and perhaps one of you would like to respond. Richard Legutko lived and suffered under communism for decades and he fought with the Polish anti-communist movement to abolish it. Having lived for two decades under a liberal democracy, however, He has discovered that these two political systems have a lot more in common than one might think. I pause from the blurb to note that the Eastern and Central European countries often say that what they're opposed to is particularly liberal democracy. Viktor Orbán, in a speech to Hungarian ethnic minorities in Romania, said Hungary is closing the book on liberal democracy. I resume the blurb. They both stem, this is communism and liberal democracy, they both stem... From the same historical roots in early modern times and accept similar presuppositions about history, society, religion, politics, culture, and human nature. And I pause again to say listeners might be shocked at this, but democracy really is not a simple matter of putting a cross against someone's name or a party icon. It does reach into all these domains of life. The blurb continues In the demon in democracy, Legutko explores the shared objectives between communism and liberal democracy and explains how liberal democracy has, over time, lurched towards the same goals as communism, albeit without Soviet-style brutality. Both systems, says Legutko, reduce human nature to that of the common man. I would say, this is Alex in my own words now, that this is somewhat similar to the straw man that judicial reasoning takes the turn of in Civil law jurisdictions, that the, the straw man uh, must be protected from certain things, therefore, real people can't have their liberties. So, Legutko is talking about the common man who, says the Beloved, is led to believe himself to be liberated from the obligations of the past. Both the communist man and the liberal democratic man refuse to admit. That there exists anything of value outside the political systems to which they have pledged their loyalty, and both systems refuse to undertake any critical examination of their ideological prejudices. Mike, as I read through that, I'm put in mind of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in Britain, or it's now the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Department, isn't it, and how it, through various integrity initiatives and other forums that we've covered on UK Column News is, uh, together with the US State Department, aggressively exporting democracy with a capital D, particularly to that area of the world, the uh, eastern half of Europe and um, the Middle East and North Africa. And there does seem to be more than an element of truth to what Richard Legutko is saying here, that uh, people who are in hock to this worship of democracy with a capital D, don't seem to think that there is anything of value in their own past or in other countries with different systems.
1: I think that's right, but perhaps a a more topical example of it is is what's going on in the United States at the moment over the general election. Look at the behaviour of the Democratic Party Look at the behaviour of the Democratic Party since before Donald Trump was elected in 2016. Look at the behaviour of the Democratic Party all the way through the the Trump presidency. And look at how that side of the political argument deals with criticism, deals with alternative points of view. Uh, Look at what's going on in the United Kingdom at the moment with respect to any criticism of policy with respect to COVID-19. There is more deeply ingrained ideology expressed through the Democratic Party in the United States or British government at the moment with respect to COVID-19, or as you say, the British Foreign Office operations in the Middle East and the efforts to create democracy in those countries. It's not democracy for the people of those countries. It's it's a British or a Western model of democracy, which, which is very, very tightly constrained, very carefully constructed doesn't allow any criticism or alternative viewpoints and are just as aggressive about their model of democracy and how that, uh, about what that is as, as any communist regime, as far as I can see.
0: Well, indeed, Mike, one of the things that came out, well, initially out of the Helsinki Final Act or final settlement in 1975 and then later out of uh, an agreement in Vienna, the CSCE, is this body, the OSCE, which, as it were, monitors the truce between the blocks, the Eastern and the Western blocks, and has done so since the Cold War was in full swing in the late 70s. And the OSCE, uh, as it is in its current form, which has had a role in the Balkans and the Caucasus and other European fringe uh, flashpoints, but also monitors elections throughout Europe and North America, has, as its perhaps most respected body, certainly respected in terms of uh, the foreign... Ministries of Western Capitals, a body which goes by the acronym name of ODIHR, an unfortunate acronym that stands for O-D-I-H-R, the Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights. Here we're bordering upon George Soros and his open society. Again, notice the centrality of Austria, Central Europe to this debate, That's out of this ferment, particularly Vienna, which has seen so many twists and turns through the 20th century, absolutism, the question of Jewish and Gentile influence and whether they can be in harmony with each other or not. Uh, Through all of this ferment, the Viennese intellectual scene has always said, how are we going to export the idea of societies being open to other people's ideas? That's at least how it's presented. But of course, many of these thinkers transplanted themselves either during Nazi persecution or just after the Second World War to London, particularly setting up shop in the London School of Economics, the LSE. And the Fabian Society has very close links geographically and uh, in terms of membership with that, and has had from the outset the famous window uh, of the Fabian Society in the LSE building, which is there to this day. This idea of the open society, which is pushed by, in a way, Soros' mentor, Karl Popper, P-O-P-P-E, another of these transplanted Austrians, is that basically a society will atrophy and no longer be worthy of respect, to use the kind of Strasbourg language, worthy of respect in democratic society, if it isn't continually throwing itself open to new people, new ethnic groups, or at least new demographic persuasions. Throwing this back to David, we're getting almost into racialist arguments, if we're not careful. Uh, a lot of people who've, who say now that they are awake, as to use the language they often use, awake to the sham of democracy, very quickly point the finger at Jews. Uh, what would you say to that charge? Well,
2: the people on the pro-liberty side, the mainstream of thought from Menger through to Hopper, of the five main thinkers, two were Jewish, um, Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises. So you'll, you'll find Jewish thinkers on all sides of the argument. The most um, coherent critique of the Jewish approach to, um, to thought and analysis on a cultural level is the Saxophon, the skillet artsman, who, who we've interviewed with the, with the UK column, born to a, a Zionist family in, in Israel himself and who has become one of the staunchest critics of Jewishness and chosenness and and the mindset that goes with it, so there are certainly things in there to critique, but any simple adherence to one ethnic group being responsible is is it, that doesn't take you anywhere that's either
0: accurate or or interesting or useful. And indeed, of course, you are, you have been, while travel's been possible, a regular visitor to Israel. For which I know you get flack from some people who don't look into the issues very carefully, but there you find that there is an absolutely roiling debate in Israel and not just two sides either but uh, many persuasions as to what the form of the Jewish state and the Zionist state should be. Uh, some of these arguments are utterly pro-democracy, others are completely against. Well if, if you look at this,
2: if you look at Zionism, to talk briefly about Zionism, uh, if you look at the early Zionist writers they were hugely critical of, of the Jews. And the whole idea behind Zionism was that we, the Jews, are, are defective and not like other people because we have no land of our own. That was the core idea. It wasn't a claim of greatness, whatever some people might have tried to turn it into sins. It was a claim that uh, there was a defect that needed to be corrected and the problem was lack of a nation without a land, a people without a land. That was the core idea. So there's, in all of these things, a lot of people will, will say Zionism instead of Jews as who is responsible, it's the Zionists as a means of avoiding um, the criticism that they're being anti-Semitic. But actually, when you look into what Zionism is, there's a lot more to that ideology than the kind of cookie-cutter, simplified version that places all blame for everything at the Zionists slash Jews. And these arguments, again, they go nowhere. But to get back to the the issue of democracy and the problems of democracy, Mike mentioned the recent situation in Britain with COVID. And I think that was an excellent example because one of the things that's happened is that the state, because it now is something like 50% of the economy, and it hoovers up great amounts of taxation wealth, and it controls the creation of money, has got for itself a level of power that a king, a monarch, or any other form of simple government would never be able to accumulate.
0: This is William Pitt's famous warning to Parliament. We've just thrown out a monarchical tyrant in the previous century, the 17th. Let us please not in the late 18th century bring back a whole bunch of tyrants in their place, which is exactly what we've now done. A divine right of Parliament, as Mike often calls it.
2: Yes. Now, with that huge financial power, they have bought certain things. They have bought the press and they have bought academia. So they've bought the intellectuals, and therefore, the parts of society that would normally generate pushback against the government are silenced, because the like the doctors under the NHS, their mouths are stuffed full of gold. They will not speak out, for the most part, uh, because the financial clout of the government is such that they dare not speak out.
1: Uh, but but it's worse than that, isn't it, David? Because it's not that they just don't speak out. They're speaking for their paymasters, particularly in the media, uh, academia to some degree. There are some academics who are prepared to stand on principle, but the majority of them are speaking out in favour of their paymasters. And, and And this, I would see as being part of the self-destruction of democracy as time goes on.
2: Yet, and, and I think that's a key phrase because this is, this is something I was told many, many years ago that the problem with democracy is it carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. Now, I understood that at the time to be essentially a reference to once, once you realize you can vote you, yourself someone else's money and wealth, then it, the, the, the whole system just descends. Uh, into the pit of of greed and of of corrupt politicians promising the earth, but it's it's deeper than that. I'm now seeing it in a different way, that the corruption of thought, the corruption of the press, or so the corruption of free expression, all of this can be traced back to the vast state wealth and power, and the vast state wealth and power is only possible under the the, the lying term that uh, we are not being governed, we are governing ourselves. It's all an expression of joyous liberty. This is not true, and I feel that the lie has concealed this huge theft and that the proceeds of the theft, uh, Legal Term in Scotland Reset, are being used to, to buy uh, those aspects of society that the state needs to, to have on side. And the sum total of this is the sort of degradation and de that Hopper writes about, and the process is accelerating.
0: David, does this have much to do with the democratic conundrum that's spoken of by a fairly new member of the House of Lords, elevated to the House of Lords, in the new manner that we've had since 1999, when the hereditary peers no longer in most cases, take their seats, uh, but appointed life peers instead. Claire Fox is one of these, and she speaks about a democratic conundrum. And she says that she feels that she sometimes has to vote with the government against her conscience as a crossbencher or non-party aligned member of the upper chamber, uh, which she gets accused of being A a Tory stooge for voting with the Tories. And she says people who make this claim don't understand the role of the House of Lords. The democratic conundrum is such that the House of Lords is there not to legislate. That's not its role. Uh, This may take some unpacking for our younger or foreign listeners who don't know what the House of Lords was in its classic form. But do talk about Claire Fox and what light she sheds on things. And perhaps after that, Mike would like to talk a little about the role of the House of Lords historically, because it's something we often, he particularly, want to shed light on in the news programs.
2: Well firstly, Claire is in terms of Claire Fox, she came from um, from being a Marxist and working for a newspaper called Living Marxism. She was in an organization called the Institute of Ideas. And essentially as the the Marxist uh, communist East fell uh, when the Berlin Wall came down and and it was shown to be an empty ideology which had failed on so many levels, some of the more thoughtful, former adherents really started to question and think about the direction the society was taking. And very often from that people from people with that background, we we get the the most insightful critics of our current society and current system, such as Peter Hitchens and Claire Fox, and several others as as, as well. So Claire's gone into the House of Lords, she's reacting to what she sees. I actually think it's a bit early to look to her for a kind of considered response to what it's all about. But she's certainly worth uh, worth listening to on the subject of of how it operates and her impressions there of, as a, as a new member in this ancient but very changed institution.
1: I mean, the House of Lords, Alex, uh, as you know very well, was well, in fact, David was talking earlier about uh, monarchies and how it's in the interest of the monarch to to leave the country in the best state as possible for the next generation because it's effectively it's his posterity that becomes the next monarch uh, and so on. So monarchs generally want to leave the country in as good a situation as possible. And and so they take the long-term view. This is the point of the House of Lords. It's It's supposed to be, I suppose, the conscience of government. Maybe you can view it that way. That's how it may have been prior to Tony Blair's reforms in 1998. But after he threw the hereditary peers out on the basis that they're undemocratic, um, he replaced them with with life peers that are selected by the main political parties. Uh, Many of them have party allegiances. Some of them are former members of the House of Commons, former uh, members of Parliament, um, have been kicked upstairs, so to speak. But we've ended up with this sort of halfway house between the old way, which was there to take the long view, and the new way, which is uh, effectively a a whipped upper chamber. And ultimately, the aim is to take the House of Lords to become a a fully elected upper chamber based on party politic party politics, which means that the democracy, in inverted commas, uh, is in control of both parts of parliament. And there is no conscience left in that building um, because both houses are completely controlled by the whips and the most recent vested interest of the day would, would like to see. There may have been criticism of, of, the, of the House of Lords before Tony Blair's reforms. But what has happened since hasn't moved us forward. In fact, it's moved us backwards. And any attempt to democratise the House of Lords uh, by making it a fully elected chamber would move us even further backwards. And really, uh, I think it's very important for people to try to understand what it is the House of Lords in its previous guise actually represented.
0: Which is, as the three of us remember if you watched or listened to uh, Lord's debates uh, before the 90s, is that a peer of the realm, usually a titled man, an earl or a duke or the like, or in some cases an appointee for lifelong service to a profession uh, who was an old-fashioned consensus type of government person, would stand up when the minister representing the government in the House of Lords made a more obscene and outrageous proposal to take our liberties or tax us till the pips squeaked, and would simply say, my lords, this is most irregular, or my lords, this cannot be right. And of course, he would often be a, a cross bencher, or somebody who wasn't even a member of a political party, or he, he may have been in his lower uh, chamber existence. That surely, internationally, as well as the idea of a reviewing chamber. Of course, the devolved legislatures in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland are unicameral legislatures, like a couple of other Legislatures in the Western world, uh, the state of Nebraska alone uh, among the United States, uh, New Zealand has been a unicameral legislature for over a century. There's no review there except judicial review, which is something we may get into in the following section of this podcast, but reviewing legislation... Here in the Netherlands or across the border in Germany, where they have even more of a federal system than the Netherlands, it's very explicit, Austria too. The upper chamber, the same in Russia, is a federal council and has that name in Austria, Germany, and Russia, uh, and represents the territories of the state. And in the Netherlands, which isn't a federal, but a unitary state, it's, again, the province is equivalent to British counties, that indirectly... Well, they directly supply the members of the upper chamber, the Senate, and so the people have indirectly voted for them through the elections to their provincial legislatures, which was the system in the United States envisaged by the founding fathers, in fact, and only abolished in Roosevelt's time. Uh, so you can see something of the loss of, of conscience there, because if a party is reviewing itself, then we're getting a little closer to the, the source of the problem. There's so much more we have to cover, and I think we're at the limit of people's listening tolerance for a single episode. So we're going to park our thoughts midway on democracy, having reviewed most of the weighty tomes. There's one more I should mention in passing, which is by Randy Burnett, Our Republican Constitution, which for American readers in particular will be interesting because it's a bit like Ferrara says that liberty with a capital L uh, is actually a questionable goal if you don't know whether you're fighting for the freedom of the individual or the freedom of a group, as uh, represented by a kind of blob figure in the middle, a kind of splitting the difference between some real actual people. Uh, So those are the books we put on the table. But there's one above all, which is actually a little pamphlet I have in my hands here, which I'm eternally grateful to a listener for having put me onto, by a relative of the well-known novelist Graham Greene, Uh, This author is Ben Green, Green with an E on the end, and his pamphlet, really, is called The British Constitution and the Corruption of Parliament. Now, despite its name, this actually goes into more detail on democracy than on the question of parliamentary sovereignty. So I think that will be the basis of our thoughts for the next episode where we will also consider more current aspects of democracy it's the ak chesterton trust reprint series number 11 and people can find it from www.cando spelt the british way c a n d o u r UK and i think they may be able to get a cribbed pdf online but it's probably much better and more honest to order the pamphlet I cannot praise this booklet highly enough uh, because it raises all of the questions. and This is one of these conscientious objectors uh, in which Britain excelled in the mid-20th century, saying, we've got it all wrong. We've got it all wrong, even if I'm Athanasius Contramundum uh, in saying so. So I'd strongly recommend listeners get hold of a copy. Uh, as they listen to this and perhaps wait until they've got their copy before pre- proceeding to the next episode. We won't just unpick Green's pamphlet, but the themes that it addresses and some related articles will bring us on to some current issues. So join us next episode for the remaining half of the question of what democracy is and to what extent we should be aiming for it. And of course, we'll be trying to gear things more practically Bearing in mind that this is a dissident's guide to the Constitution, well done if you've made it this far up the initial slope. Your efforts will be rewarded as we become more pragmatic as time goes on, but you have to gain some altitude in order to understand pragmatically what the problems are.